Hi everyone and welcome to Las Musas podcast. My name is Juliet Menendez and I'm the author of Latinitas Celebrating 40 Big Dreamers. Today I'm joined by Sally Ann Rodriguez, Nikki Bachelmills, Maria Jose Fitzgerald, Vanessa Torres, and Rebecca Valcarcel, and E.E. Trujillo. Um, and on this episode of Ask a Musa, we'll be talking about our writing process and how we think the publishing industry is looking for Latinx creators these days. Can you start us off by introducing yourselves and telling us a little bit about your books? Uh, let's start with Sally Ann. Well, thank you, Juliet, for hosting. And my debut middle grade novel is called Treasure Tracks, and it's an adventure about 12-year-old Fernando, or Finn as he prefers to be called, who goes on a quest for a sunken treasure, hoping that finding the family legacy will help this ailing abuelo. So it's a multi-generational story with some humor, a lot of heart, and a, a lot of marine science that takes place between Miami and the Florida Keys. What a fun, perfect book for the summer. <laughs> so I'm so excited to read it myself. And um, what about you, Nikki? Could you tell us a little bit about your book? Yes, thank you so much for having me on, um, Juliet. I'm excited to be here. So uh, my most recent book is my third YA contemporary. It came out in October and it is called Everything Within and In Between. It is about Rhee Fernandez, who, like me, is mixed and Latinx, but has light skin, and she's trying to connect with her heritage by reconnecting with her absent mom and learning Spanish while keeping it a secret from her strict immigrant um, Mexican grandma who has kept her away from both. Wow, I can definitely relate to that story. I'm excited to read that, too. And um, how about Maria Jose? Hello. Um, thanks again, Juliet. I will echo a third time. Thank you for hosting us. And my debut novel is a middle grade eco mystery called Turtles of the Midnight Moon. And it is a dual POV story um, set in Honduras, uh, which is where I'm from. And it follows 12 year old Lorana, who lives in a coastal village where she spends every spare second um, visiting the sea turtles that nest on her beach. And then Abby is the other character who's feeling adrift in sixth grade in New Jersey, where I currently live, and kind of trying to figure out where she belongs after her best friend moved away. And then, of course, these two girls come together when Abby's uh, father brings her along on a work trip to Honduras. And all of a sudden, Abby and Barana are working together to solve this mystery. And along the way, they discover the, the meaning of friendship and community. And they're just my two environmental activists. And yeah, that's my story. And it'll be out in March of 2023. So still a ways away. So exciting and such a beautiful story. And yay for books from Central America. <laughs> love, love, love. Um, okay, so next, uh, Vanessa, could you tell us a little bit about your book? Yes, I can. Thanks, Juliet. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for listening, everyone. I am Vanessa L. Torres, and I'm the author of The Turning Point. It's my debut YA novel. It came out on 2-22-22, which is an awesome date. I will never <laughs> get over that date. And it follows Rosa Dominguez, a ballet dancer in 1983 Minneapolis. 
and she is navigating some complex family expectations after they've undergone some significant trauma and change. She also has a new love in her life, Nikki, who looks better in his point shoes than she does. And she has her own aspirations to dance for the purple one himself, Prince, the purple one himself, who happens to be rehearsing for the movie Purple Rain in the studio above hers. So, so fun. Can't wait for that one. And um, Rebecca, could you tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, my newest is a middle grade novel that came out in May called Shine On Luz Delis. And Luz was a soccer star, but an injury has her on the bench and trying to figure out who she will be now. And she stumbles into computer coding and robotics. And, um, and then her life is disrupted even more because her father has a 13 year old surprise from Guatemala, his home country, um, who is going to move in with them. So she has um, a half sister to contend with um, as she shares her room and her parents and tries to figure out um, who she is in her family, in her school, and pretty much in every way. <laughs> so, so that's Shine on Luz Bellis. And I'm, I'm happy to be here again. Thanks. Oh, I love all these books about identity. <laughs> um, so, so important. Um, and E.E., could you tell us about your book? Yeah, so I'm E.E. Charlton Trujillo, and um, I traditionally write uh, middle grade and YA, but I recently published my first co-authored picture book, Lupe Lopez, Rockstar Rules. And it is definitely ripped from the playbook of my childhood, uh, growing up in small town, South Texas, and uh, showing up to kindergarten, looking a little bit larger than life. And so uh, we've channeled some of that in this book where Lupi is going to kindergarten, assured, assured in her own self that she is a rock star, but those rules don't always kind of mesh with the rules of being a kindergartner. And so she's trying to figure out how to balance this sense of identity of, of who she knows herself to be with, of course, the, the rules of school. And, um, and, and in that balance, you know, what does it take to figure out how to be your best version of yourself and respect other space? And so it definitely has all of those elements that I grew up in with the sort of Mexican-American heritage of language and um, the culture that's in the space of, of the of when we look at the images. So I'm just so excited um, to have this book in the world and to see young people reading it and to see them speaking in English and Spanish as they read it. And so it's just been really a, a really unique celebration for me to, to have these younger people to talk to about this particular book. So, so thanks for having me. It's great. Oh, so happy you can be here. And I wish I had read that book in kindergarten. <laughs> that sounds like the best. Um, so, so exciting. Um, so my book, um, well, I'm Juliette Menendez, as I mentioned before, and my book is Latinitas Celebrating 40 Big Dreamers. It's also available in Spanish as Latinitas, Una Celebración de 40 Soñadoras Audaces, and a bilingual board book version for little ones will be coming out um, this September, September 27th. And it's a feminist history that starts off in the 1600s with the writer and philosopher Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz and ends with present day figures like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and gymnast Lori Hernandez. 
and it gives a glimpse into the lives of these women from all over Latin America and across the United States from many different professions and many different backgrounds and shows how Latinas have never just been on the margins of history as observers, as our history books often present them, but have been shaping it all along. So um, before we get into our listener questions, I would love to hear what all of you are reading right now. Um, let's start again with Sally Ann. Well, my list of my TBR list just got really big because I'm just so impressed with all these titles and I'm so excited to read everyone's books, but I am actually currently reading, as it would happen, Rebecca Parker's book, uh, Shine on Lu Feliz, because one mm -hmm. of my, my oldest son, he's a little tech wizard and he's already, he's always been into robotics and coding. So I was really drawn to this topic. I'm halfway through the book and I'm loving it. So I can't recommend it enough. So that is what I'm currently reading and I'm loving it. <laughs> Gracias, Salian. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, and Nikki, what about you? I'm reading Book Lovers by Emily Henry. It's like an adult rom-com. And I've just heard a bunch of people, you know, like us writers want to read like meta about other writers and editors and stuff. So I'm really enjoying it. And I think it's a good break sometimes to read like something that I'm not writing so it doesn't feel like work as much so that's that's good for the escapism for and it's sure. just really good <laughs> for sure um and Maria Jose I failed at attempting to read like adult novels this summer <laughs> I was I had set a goal I was like I'm just gonna like beach read adult fiction and I just did not succeed. And I just love middle grade and YA too much. But I'm currently reading um, Angela Velez's Lulu and Milagro's Search for Clarity. And it is amazing. It's so good. And I just love both these characters. And it's also a dual POV, which I also really love. And I'm really enjoying it. So that's what I'm reading. That is on my list for like the next thing I want to read. I've heard so, so much about it. And Vanessa, could you tell us a bit about what you're reading? Yeah, um, I loved Lulu, by the way. I loved that book so much. I've, I've talked about it before on this podcast. <laughs> I'm a huge fan and I'm also a big fan of dual POV. So we have a like, I don't know, the blue light special right now is to dual POVs because I just finished um, Heartbreak Symphony, Lake and Zaya Kemp's Heartbreak Symphony. And that was amazing. I was drawn to it just because I love books that include music, um, dual POVs and new love and all those things. Um, and it really delivered. And my daughter and I are now finally reading together because I wanted to read it together with my 11 year old, um, The Last Quintista, Donna's book. Um, you know, the Newbery Award winning Donna Barba Higuera. And it is amazing. I cried within the first two pages. So just warning you right there. <laughs> oh my goodness. That book made me cry all throughout. <laughs> I mean, it's a tearjerker. Even from the book's description. That has never happened to me before. I was no. Yeah. That book is intense. Um, but both of those books are so great. Um, and let's see, Rebecca. Tell us, you're good. Uh, it, sure, I'm lucky. I just was able to read uh, Maria Jose's Turtles in the Midnight Moon, and it, it everyone is going to love it. It's too bad you have to wait till 2023 for it to come out. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and um, it, it's just inspiring and it's beautifully written too. Um, I'm also reading Solimar by uh, Pem 
Munoz, Ryan, <laughs> and um, I'm trying to kind of go back and and pick up some some books that uh, of hers and others that that I kind of missed when they first came out. So um, yeah, and it's good so far, but I just started because because I just finished with Maria Jose's book. So many good recommendations. Yeah. And Eve, what about you? I've tried to read. I've had a, a bumpy couple of weeks, so I'm a little I'm a little tardy on some of my reading. I did get to read a picture book by Stephen Brasenio, The Notebook Keeper. I don't know if anyone else has heard about it or had a chance to read it. It was so beautiful. It totally hit my heart space and all of those ways that a story about writing about immigration and the border and how we collect our stories. Um, and it just, it really, it really reached into my heart. And uh, I had the privilege of meeting Stephen at, at one of his events and we just sat and talked and it was just really beautiful to hear how this came about for him and, and to see that it's his first picture book. And he's an educator in San Antonio here in Texas. And then of course I read Treasure Tracks because I had the delight of writing a blog post for that for Las Musas. And you know, and what, what one thing I really loved about that, I just want to say is, is that we've all read adventure stories and we love really great adventure stories with plots that carry us into these these wonderful spaces. And what I what I really loved is it, it but it wasn't it wasn't like we were going into the Michael Bay film version of it. Like it was that it actually had heart and humanness and connectiveness and that connective tissue to humanity and the way the men interacted in the young in the young man who's the the Finn who's the um, main character so anyway it was just a really wonderful story for me and I really loved it and I don't want to overly praise it but I can't because I really enjoyed it and oh, last but not least um, I've been reading uh, Gordo it's a collection of short stories and um, set in Watsonville California uh, in a migrant workers camp in the 1970s and it's not considered like YA or middle grade but when I read it I can't help but not hear that voice because the the young man is like in middle grade level and it's been one of those those books that I just couldn't put down. It's by uh, Ami Cortez. And it's just, I feel like I wish it had been marketed for younger people because I just felt like it was just so to what would speak to them. And it's it's really, it's it's been a really, all, all of these books have been a really uh, lush experience to read. So yeah. This is incredible that this is you like behind on your reading, um, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> um, but, but I love what you said about, um, all of the books and especially the idea of something reaching into your heart and what I what reached into my heart was Marsha Mickelson's um, Where I Belong. I hadn't gotten a chance to read that yet and it was just so so thoughtful um, and I love how I love these looks into how we define ourselves and how finding your own voice has so much to do about owning who you are and um, it really struck me as super powerful and um, just, yeah, I loved it. I loved it a lot. So um, shout out to Marsha Mickelson on her book. It was really incredible. Um, so let's get started with the listener questions. Um, so the first question is, how long did it take for you to write your debut book and how many versions did you write? And let's start again with Sally Ann. Sure. So my debut novel is Treasure Tracks, which I mentioned it came out on June 28th. So just over two weeks ago. 
In terms of how long it took me to write it, I'm going to say about six months because I, I wrote it during the quarantine period of the pandemic and we were locked here and I was kind of living the adventure and my kids were doing virtual school and they were locked in the house. So I wanted to take all kids on an adventure and I was just, I was very inspired with this book and it just really flowed probably quicker than any other manuscript I've ever written. So six months. I guess it's pretty quick. Uh, you know, that's not, that doesn't really include the revisions because as we know, the revisions can go on forever because we sit there and nitpick and hang on every word. And so I would say a little longer with the revisions, but this actually was a pretty quick book for me to write just because I was so inspired. <laughs> yeah, that that's amazing. Six months and I can definitely hear from what you're saying that it just kind of float because six months is super fast and you just sounded like you were completely immersed. Yeah. It did flow. The characters took on a life of their own and it, it was a fun, it was fun for me to write. <laughs> it sounds like it. That's amazing. What a cool story. Um, and uh, how about uh, for you, Nikki? <laughs> I wish I had such an easy answer. Not that that was an easy process for you, but like the answer I feel like is really, uh, simple or not simple, but understandable. I wrote, so my debut novel was, is the quiet you carry. And that came out in 2019. I started writing it like the very beginning of 2015 or like the last month or whatever of 2014, but I only wrote it for like a month and then I was getting married and then, um, I got married and then I moved out of state and then I had a different book that I was getting ready on submission, which was my first book that didn't, um, that I got an agent with, but that I didn't sell, that didn't sell it died on sub. And so, oh gosh, I don't know. I think probably it took like the first draft one. I, if I'm not counting that writing for a month, if I count when I started, like after I got married and moved, it probably took like six months. But like, that was like the first draft. And then, you know, when did I start revising it after we gave up on that other book that didn't sell? And, you know, that took, I don't know, probably like a year before it, it went out. And then it was on submission for like two years. <laughs> so from the second that I started writing it to when it came out, I think it was five years, but anything in between is anyone's guess. <laughs> Oh, I definitely relate more to your version of things, Nikki. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But um, let's let's go on with Maria Jose. How, what was your process like? Um, I I've probably gone through ten iterations of of Turtles of a Midnight Moon, um, if not more. But I I wrote the first draft in probably a six month period. I started in the summer of 2019. So that from that summer until I, I remember my goal was to finish before 2020. So I was like, I'm going to finish this first draft by the end of 2019. And so I, did, I wrote that first draft in about six months as well. But that first draft was like under 40,000 words. It was like 36, 37,000 words. And it was very underwritten. It was very, <laughs> I mean, the bones are still the same in the current version. But then I... Um, I revised it in 2020 and went through a couple iterations. I sent it to some beta readers and friends and just got feedback. And then I entered Pitch Wars. So at that point, between summer 2019 and Pitch Wars, I had probably written it three or four times, just revising. And then through Pitch Wars, 
I mean, I kind of rewrote it. Like we restructured because it's a dual POV. So we moved stuff around and then I added like 30,000 words <laughs> or something like that. So, and then, you know, you revise with your agent and you revise with your editor a couple of times. So, I mean, in total, it's been three years since the summer of 2019 until now. And I just finished copy edits. So about 10 revisions and about three years is my answer. Wow. wow. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's an incredible process. And I love how like the first part comes out, like kind of in this state of flow. And then it's like yeah. this whole revision process, which it sounds like it's that's right. typical. Yep. It's exactly it. You get all your, you idea dump and you kind of get it out and what you want the theme to be and the story and the characters and who they are. And then you just kind of go through the long, painful process of, of <laughs> making it all better and fixing the problems. And yeah, you got to have a lot of patience in this business and a lot of persistence. Sure, sure. I never would have imagined if someone had told me how long every single part takes. Um, but it's... You know, my family's like, when can we buy your book? I'm like, oh. very soon um so Vanessa what about for you yeah I like that that term idea dump because that is what it is the first draft and I idea dumped the first draft of the turning point in about a year because I was working full-time I mean I work full-time as a firefighter paramedic so like we do 24 hour shifts. So like, even when I get home the next day, sometimes I'll need to sleep. So, um, you know, my writing time was very inconsistent. And so, and, and I was doing it in a coffee shop to kind of, I wrote the whole first draft in a coffee shop surrounded by people with all the noise and everything, because I do thrive in a little bit of chaos, which I guess says a lot about me. Um, but yes, I do work better like that in silence. My mind just wanders to other things. And so it took me a year and then I did two more revisions after that, which probably was maybe another year. And then I entered a literary competition um, through the Alaska Writers Guild. And, um, the manuscript was chosen as the most promising YA manuscript, which was really cool. And then because I am who I am, I had to do another revision before I queried agents just to make sure it was, you know, perfect, which it wasn't because then when I signed with my agent, we did another revision because I have a very editorial agent. And then, um, then it went out on sub and I did two rounds of edits with my editor, nothing too big. I think my edit letter was like seven pages or something. I've heard nightmare stories about edit letters being like forever long. Um, but anyway, so I think maybe I had to write it all down. I think maybe that's about eight versions of it once I add it all up and I don't know, two and a half years or so. So yeah, a lot goes into it. But I just wrote my book too in four months. I had a crazy deadline and um, it almost turned me to dust, <laughs> seriously, because I'm not a fast writer. <laughs> Wow, let's talk amazing. about for a second how cool it is that you're a firefighter. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, totally, absolutely. And, <laughs> that you, cool. and that you write and that you, you right? get up and you do this work because the writing part, come on, everybody. I mean, how hard is that? You, you work, you're out there, you're doing that every day. I know everybody's working hard, but yeah. I mean, that's taxing. I, and then I just, I, as you were telling the story, I'm like, and how did you get to that end? How did you, you know, it's just like, it's really, that's inspiring. Yeah. 
Thank you. It's a lot. I've it stepped is. away from um, the department a little bit. I'm part time there now, which has really helped, really helped because I get to retire in a year from the fire service, y'all. Because wow. I've been doing this for 27 years. Really? Oh gosh. Did that you start like at 15? I know. I'm and like, how is that I, possible? I started really young, but anyway, yeah. your skincare, like, I guess yeah. you're <laughs> young. Yeah. It's kind of nice. Oh my God. Amazing upon amazing this story. I can't, I can't really take it all in. Um, super cool. Um, and so, Rebecca, what about you? You know, I'm loving hearing how different everybody's journey has been, and it just shows that there are so many ways this can go. This is such a weird world, the publishing world. Um, for me, my debut, debut book took, I wanna say like six years between, between starting it and, and publishing. And I was writing a lot of that time, even though I also had that experience of having like a concentrated summer where the bulk of the book came out and I had this, you know, I had this thing, but it was still kind of in a molten state and not solid. Um, and I revised it, you know, with my critique group and all that kind of stuff. But even after I got an agent, I did like four complete rewrites with her. And I do also have a pretty editorial agent, which is great because she really brought out the best in the book. Like I, I think when you're being edited well, you realize that that the book has even more potential than you ever thought. And, and you know, someone can point out, oh, you know, did you realize you were doing this? Well, you could do it a little more and then wouldn't that be cool? So I appreciated that. Um, and of course I had to rewrite once, uh, I even once the project was bought by the publisher, then there was a couple of more rewrites. I wanna say close to eight. Yeah, something like eight altogether. Um, and in my case, I had started writing not knowing I was even writing a novel. So that, that put me back a little bit because <laughs> I thought I was writing a collection of poems in the voice of the main character because I have a background in poetry. So I, I didn't plan to write fiction and I definitely didn't plan to write a novel. But um, after I got an agent, I committed to the novel idea. And it actually wasn't until like revision seven that I put in the main plot line of the book, which sounds crazy. This is not what I recommend <laughs> as far as writing a book, but um, I'm glad I pushed myself because um, it could have been one of those quiet books that doesn't really have a plot, but no, I, I put a plot in there and it's better for it. The character is richer for it. I'm, I'm really glad um, that I had the opportunity to like bring the whole book to another level but it took a long, long time. And I was much faster with my second book too, thank goodness. Yeah, I, I love that you started with the character and like you, I love hearing all these different process <laughs> stories because everyone has such a unique way of approaching, especially their first book, I think, and learning how, how to do it. Um, and EE, what about, what, what was it like for you? Yeah, so I have, a so I have a very, very different um, trajectory into publishing than I think everyone. And uh, so I wrote my first book on a dare and um, it was, it was actually during a time uh, of, a, I was in a lot of struggle. I was, I was homeless at the time 
And um, <clears throat> a friend who was an author had seen a, you know, just like a couple of pages of something I wrote and they, um, they didn't think it was that good. And I think I felt like sort of that mentality to say, well, I think it's good, you know, because that's what ego does. Right. And so they dared me to write a novel and I'd never written a novel. I'd gone to film school and I just finished and I was trying to figure out my life and, and um, you know, and I was in a lot of grief over someone I'd lost. And so I sat down for two months and in those two months I wrote my first novel and I did one other pass. Um, that pass was about maybe three weeks. And then that same person said, there's this competition you should enter. I didn't know anything about competitions. I didn't know anything about writing for children. And I, it's called the Delacour Del Yearling Award. And I entered it through Random House. And then I forgot about it. And I literally mailed it the last day you could send it in. Literally as the post, post office was closing. And then um, I totally forgot. And I'm at this like laundromat in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. And not homeless anymore, but not really much better. And I get this call. And I thought it was the student loan people. And <laughs> it was Random House. And they're like, you won this competition. And I didn't even know what it was. And so I, you know, I'm just, this is the absolute ignorance. You have to understand this was years ago. And, um, and once I realized what it, what it, what it was and what it meant, I think it was then that I began to understand how precious it was because I didn't understand it at the time. You know, I, you know, I, I was a filmmaker, uh, I was a playwright and a poet, I was living in a different world. And so I didn't understand that how special that was to get that in that until it was like, it really settled in. And I thought, is this something I can do with my life? Like, can I tell stories for young people? And, and, you know, that was my first book, Price Fighter in Mikasa. And it's definitely the book of my heart. It came from the, you know, one of those places of, of where, you know, there's incredible sadness in your life, but you convert that into something that has hope and, and that you can, you can look at and say, wow. And it's the world that I grew up in of being Mexican American and in South Texas and, and the kind of, um, I mean, I didn't grow up with a one-eyed prize fighter from Mexico, but, you know, a lot of the characters were, were from that, that experience. And so, you know, it, it's, I think I always go back to that. I've written, you know, young adult and now picture books and essays and all these other things. But I always remember that book as being so special, not because I got so fortunate, but because I didn't quit, you know, like I, I really could have taken that time to, to check out and not do the work. And even though I did it fast, you have to understand, I didn't have children. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have, you know, there's a lot of other things that pull our time away from what we need to do. All I had was to figure out how to breathe from one moment to the next. And part of that was finding the story. And, on, and since then, it doesn't mean every book comes that fast, obviously. And, but it was just, it was a very different way into publishing. And then the follow-up would be Feels Like Home, which is not connected to that book. But that took me six months, you know, like, you know, so it's not like every book came out in like, you know, eight weeks and I'm like winning awards. It's like, you still have to do the work. It was just one of those moments where my debut came to me in a place where I needed to heal. And in return, it's been so great to see, you know, even years later when young people read it and they just really like, they just really get it. And they just go, wow, how is that possible? Like that's, that is the power of story sometimes that it can just sort of transcend time. So it's um, like I said, it's very untraditional. But with that said, even with people now as they're publishing, you know, whether it's two months or six months or five years, the point is to not quit on your story and to, to welcome people into your creative sphere who can see where you can grow and mirror that back to you. And so that's part of the stuff you learn after you win years later and you think about those things and, and realize who makes you, who continues to make you a better writer. So like just being here with all of you, I'm like, I listen to your stories and I listen to how you come to this process. And I think to myself, wow, these are amazing women who are doing amazing things on the page. 
what I would have given to known you when I was starting, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I love that that's something that the people who are listening are going to have. So, yeah. Wow, I, that is such a beautiful story, and I agree with that so much. Um, I wish I had known this group too. And also, I love what you said about the people who really kind of see you while you're in that process and just kind of bring <laughs> bring these stories out of us. I think it's so important, and that's definitely what happened for me. And for me, this was kind of a complicated question <laughs> um, because I was trying to think too, like how how this book all came together. And I'm gonna apologize in advance for this long answer because it was kind of a crazy process but basically for me I did everything in reverse um I started with the illustrations I got an agent sold the book and then learned how to write <laughs> which is a very very bizarre process I realized so let me explain like a little bit how how that came to be so originally the Latinitas were part of a poster project that I started back in 2014. And I was working as an art teacher at the time in Upper Manhattan and wanted my students whose families mainly came from the Dominican Republic, Mexico and Puerto Rico to see some role models up on the walls of their schools that looked more like them and came from similar backgrounds. Um, they had people up on their walls like Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin and Dali and I just, I thought, you know, it would be nice to see some fresh new faces and I thought I could do that. I have a background in um, both education as well as graphic design and illustration. So I felt comfortable in that area. But while I was looking into uh, creating these posters and delving into Latinx history, I kept noticing that when I found the stories about the Latina women, they were mainly tucked away in the margins or buried in the footnotes. And so I quickly realized that these posters just weren't going to be enough um, and that these stories really needed to be told. But I wasn't really sure if I was the one to write them because like I said, my background wasn't actually in writing and I loved writing. I, you know, I loved writing ever since I was a child, but I hadn't studied it. So I had a lot of self-doubt and I set the project aside for a bit, but I had kind of started this little blog with stories of the of the Latinas that I that I had featured in the posters, and you know I was kind of trying out writing, but I wasn't really sure. And my agent Adriana Dominguez found that um, in 2018, and she really encouraged me to bring this book to life, and she made me feel like maybe maybe I could do it. I really really wasn't sure. I kept being like, well, you know, a lot of writers. Maybe I could illustrate and we could collaborate. She was like, I know a writer that can do it, and it's you. I was like, but okay. <laughs> so we were, so she actually set up these meetings for me with editors in New York. And honestly, without really knowing what I was doing, I pitched this book and I trusted in her. Um, and there was so much excitement about this book and she like really inspired me. She was like, okay, so now you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to write it <laughs> like, and get, you know, get it out to them so that we can put it on submission. And that's really when I started figuring out how how to write these stories. Um, I got a lot of inspiration from obviously books that were coming out at the time, like Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls and you know things like that. Um, but really I started writing at, at that time <laughs> and um, it went through many versions as you might imagine since I was figuring that out. Um, and the illustrations changed, the stories changed. And even when we were like going through copy editing, 
I changed a few of the of the profiles <laughs> since I was figuring out the whole thing. I honestly don't know how many versions it was. My editor could probably tell you um, that you know I I went a little um, crazy with the revisions. <laughs> no, not crazy, but but yeah, it was it was a long process of figuring out how to write. I had so much wonderful support from my agent and also um, my editor, of course, and and I'm just so thankful that they believed in me. Um, and, and that it came together. So I would say all in all, um, it took about six years, but the actual writing was probably about a year and a half from the time I signed from the book and the research, of course, that went into it. So, so that's, that's my story, definitely a little bit backwards. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, moving on to the next question, do you think a lot of agents are signing Latinx books or are really signing Latinx books? And we'll keep up with the same order. Sally, and let's start with you. Sure. I mean, I'm definitely interested to hear what everybody says on this topic as well, but it seems to me, and this is just my perspective, that I do see just on Twitter and social media, I see a lot of agents asking for Latinx works, Latinx creators to represent, you know, a broader diversity of voices. So that's the momentum that I feel I'm seeing. And again, I'm really interested to see everybody weigh in on this topic. And I just hope that my, percep my perception is true because that's the wonderful thing and we need our voices out there. Yeah, I agree, I, just to jump in. Um, and I think we're moving past agents thinking, well, I need one Latinx writer on, you know, in my client list. I think they're now thinking in terms of, ah, you know, I could have more than one. I don't need to just, think in terms of checking that box, but rather, wait, there's a whole, there's a, there's a lot of rich stories out there and, and I do wanna represent those. So I'm very hopeful. I have kind of a nuance to comment on that. Uh, so, okay, I have three books that are out and my third book, um, the one that I was talking about for this, Everything Within and In Between, and that one is very much about identity being mixed bicultural, all about being Latinx, Mexican American, figuring out who the, um, you know, based on, obviously it's like fiction, but like I had a coming of age story of myself with, you know, what I look like and where I came from and all that. And that sold very quickly. It sold, I mean, I had editor interest from my editor like three weeks in and had the phone call and was bought. And uh, whereas I mentioned my first book, The Quiet You Carry, it was two years. <laughs> and, um, the reason I say that is, or the reason that I give those, that is a book, everything within in between is a book that's specific about Latinx identity, right? And I think that there is a big hunger within that uh, for, for those kind of books. But, and then The Quiet You Carry was about identity, but not about being Latinx. In fact, I kind of related a little bit to E.E.'s story. I grew up in foster care. I was homeless before foster care. That was a much more, um, specific identity and it took a really long time to sell uh but I wouldn't give up I didn't give up because it was like a kind of a book of my heart like he was saying it was like I got to tell this story but I guess what I'm saying is I think that sometimes people and I'm not just talking about myself but friends we can get um put in this like what are you going to write about in your marginalization and um you know, I want to be able to write more than 
a foster kid book because I was in foster care or homeless more than a light-skinned Mexican Caucasian person trying to find their way in the world because I was that. Um, I would like to write more characters that like maybe they're bicultural like I am, but maybe it has nothing to do with all the, like, of course there are going to be challenges because we all have challenges and a book wouldn't be a book if there was no tension and story arc. But like what I'm kind of hoping, I'm hoping that there's more room for people like me and us to write the stories that are not just about our marginalizations and that we can exist being what we are without that having to be the whole point. So Nikki, are you talking about also normalizing kind of our experiences too? Cause you know how, and, and correct me if I'm getting this absolutely wrong, but like, for instance, you know, when I, when my, my first, um, when my first book in the Fat Energy series came out, you know, there weren't a ton of books about queerness. Right. And even though it's not like a how-to guide to be queer, there is queerness in it. Right. You right. know. And so then the thing is though, is when, when, you know, and it was about, you know, coming out. And now we know that we don't have to just have coming out stories, right? We can have all kinds of stories about queerness or about fatness or tallness or shortness or whatever. And so are you talking about like the idea of how we can kind of normalize our experiences without it being like, and then they put flour tortillas on the table. And then, you know, like, not that we don't even, I love flour tortillas. (laughs) They're always on my table. It's a problem. Right. That's exactly what what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So like, I want to write like, I don't want just because I don't want like all of my books to be like the issue books. Yes. I want, I want to be like, okay. And then this bicultural girl, like, I don't know, is a dancer or a basketball player or whatever, you know what I mean? And it's just that, um, again, just using my experience that the book that I sold the, like that had the most, like really, really quick response was like, so yes, it's true. I do think people are picking up the Latinx stories, um, and it's, and it, you know, I'm so grateful for that. This was a story that I wrote because I think I was right. I was writing the story even before I was saying all that we need diverse book stuff, even before, um, it just, because it was a story that meant something to me because it was the story that I wanted to read when I was growing up. But, um, so yeah, I do think that people are picking up these stories. I'm just saying that I hope that we can see more. And of course it exists. A bunch of our Las Musas friends are writing books that are not necessarily just about being, you know, whatever they are. Like there's more, You, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm hoping for every time I see an agent or editor saying, and I really want, and then they list all of the marginalizations they want, like, cool that's great. But like, can we also want like them our stories about like just living and again with problems, but like the same problems that like somebody who like a cis white person could have in their book, like going to magic school or whatever, you know what I mean? Like that it doesn't have to be just about, like you said, normalizing it. And that that's not the point always. And again, this is coming from someone who wrote a book where that was the point. And I didn't write that for like, because I was like, Ooh, it's going to sell. I wrote that because that was like, in a lot of ways, my story, even though it was fiction. Nikki, to your point, I really feel like my book treasure tracks got picked up and it got picked up very quickly. I was very fortunate, but I really felt it got picked up because it was very, it was commercial. My protagonist, I think it just, they, they happen to be Latino, but it doesn't shape the story. I mean, certainly there's cultural elements and history 
you know, intertwined into the story, but Finn's just off on a great adventure and he could be any American kid who happens to be half Cuban, half Puerto Rican. But I really feel to your point that my story got picked up because it was that. So if there's a glimmer of hope, I, I hope that my story can share that. And I feel Rebecca, your story as well, because I'm halfway through it. I mean, yes, you have cultural elements, but it's STEM and it's robotics and it could be, you know, it could be any child as well who just happens to, you know, so I, I, I see hope for more of these stories. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely see that too. And I think these are such, such great points about that. And also just kind of the idea of not just learning about Latinx culture. Like this is, these are books that you get to learn about it, but just, you know, the way that you would relate to any other character, they're like you and you learn about their world the same way you kind of experience your own instead of just like alternate one. Um, so I think that that's really great. And so um, we skipped a little bit, which was great. I love that. Um, but yeah, Vanessa and Maria, did you have things to add to that? I mean, if anyone out there aspiring query trenchers or whatever, they want the nuts and bolts of everything, um, Publishers Marketplace is a good place to look and see. Um, you can actually see what was acquired and what was sold and all of that. Um, manuscript wish list, Hip Latina, um, and Latinx in Publishing, they, their website, they actually list agents. They, they'll list Latinx agents who are acquiring Latinx books. Then they have a category, um, agents of color that are looking for Latinx books. And then they have a category, um, you know, people who are not of color who are acquiring Latinx bo books. So like you can look at agents who actually are acquiring and what they're acquiring. So like there are ways to kind of get the information. You can also just go on agencies, websites, look at the agents and look at who their clients are, you know, and what's sold. Mm -hmm. um, but I do feel like it's getting, there's some forward movement. I mean, I have to believe that to put my hands on the keyboard, to be honest. Oh my gosh, I hope no one took me wrong. I think that it's happening too, because obviously in Los Angeles, no, I didn't. Not a friend who have <laughs> books out. I'm just saying, like, oh. like, oh good, it's it's happening. I want to see more of that happening. I want yes, that, I too. want, I want to start. I think I'm like, this is the the direction I want to try to do some of this stuff too. And and I've just seen it be a struggle for a lot of people. And so, oh, so yeah, but but yes, to what everybody said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you gave perfect. I, I don't have a lot. That is beautiful. So Maria Jose. <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't have a whole lot to add. I actually, this was the one question on the list that I was like, I don't know the data, but from, from my, you know, social media circle, the algorithm I'm seeing, it seems so kind of like what Sally Ann was saying. It seems to me like the agents are acquiring more Latinx books. Um, but I love, I love your advice, Vanessa, too, for where to find agents, because I, I didn't have that advice when I was in the query trenches before Pitch Wars. After Pitch Wars, it changed because the agents request you in the agent showcase. By the way, Pitch Wars is no longer, it's no more. So, but when I was querying before Pitch Wars, I literally went to the library to look through those books with like the agents on them. <laughs> they exist. And I like took my notebook and I was like writing down agents names and their all that stuff. So it's good to have the online advice. I wish I'd had that. Um, yeah, I did the same thing with the SCBWI, the book, you know, they have, it's called the book, I think. And, you know, it lists all the agents and I did that. Like it felt very old school. Like I was card cataloging it and stuff. Right. Might not even have listeners out there who know what that is, but yeah. yeah. 
I did write a book about the 80s, so I'm all into that stuff. But yeah, yeah art catalogs forever. You were living in your research. You were living book. it. You're, yes. you're, you were card cataloging. It's so great, though. I love Vanessa that you're giving people like the the sort of the pathway to get to that information, and and people need that. And you know, I'm going to just pop into that question though. Um, I don't have the data either, by the way, Maria. I don't have the data. Um, I didn't data search. Um, I have ADHD, so but I know everything else. So if you want to know how to build a birdhouse, I can help you. But um, but what I would say is, is the question is focusing on agents. Are they are they are they you know taking manuscripts? Well, I mean, I'm sure we there is data that supports that, right? We are all agented, so that's good in this room, and, and hopefully that means more being so. Um, the, the, the question that keems, continues to kind of move through our industry is, but are publishers publishing more books by, you know, you know, and so we, we do see posts on, on Twitter and then, but sometimes what I see is a lot of very <clears throat> of constant posts of like, like 10 same people, not always, but then, then I think to myself, so I think, you know, by having something like, like, like Las Musas is we are elevating constantly elevating more and more authors to have the platform, right, by which they can have opportunity. And so I think, you know, really the question becomes then is, are, you know, you know, what was great is Vanessa says, well, here is how you can find out this information. And when people come to Las Musas, here is how you can meet, you know, a world of people here who are trying to not pull each other down, but to lift each other up, right? And so I think, sometimes it does feel a little bit like us against publishing at times, depending on the situation. I love what you said, Nikki. I, I didn't think you were, you know, I thought you were spot on. You're talking about how we, we approach our story, right. And how we, right, but I wasn't talking about my agent. I just realized no, no, that's your agent. Agent. I was like, no, my agent is no. great. <laughs> no, 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 no. It wasn't about your agent at all. You didn't say nobody got through under the bus. Everybody, <laughs> okay. like, This is not hunger games. We all walk out alive. Okay. You know, <laughs> It's not even Latino Hunger Games. Can you imagine? Oh my God, that would be amazing. That's the next Hunger Games. Anyway, that's not the point. The point to the thing is though, is whether or not we think is there forward momentum? Yes, of course there's forward momentum, but there is so much more room to grow. And, you know, it's through certain organizations that are propelling that movement. You know, just like if you're sitting in here right now, listening to this podcast, you are part of moving forward. And so I think that that's something to keep in mind. And to, to yes, it can be discouraging at times, but it is not impossible. And when you find, again, you find those people who are there to, to lift you up, you know, you can find a place in this industry. It's, it's work, but it can happen. For sure. And that, that was really our next question too. Is there really an increase? And I'd like to hear what other people are thinking about this. Um, you said it beautifully. Like, I think, I think you're definitely <laughs> on point with that. Um, but, but let's hear from some other people as well. What, what you think? Well, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to like statistics, because my background is marketing. So I love research and statistics. So I did pull out some statistics and you guys can kind of chime in. But the last ones that I have here, or that 5.3% of children's books feature a Latino main character. And according to the last U.S. Census, Latino children comprise 26% of the U.S. population. So if these, if these figures haven't changed, 
there's still a lot of room for growth, right? So I think we, I, I think we're moving in the right direction. I think we've all mentioned this, but there's still a lot of room. And in Miami, where I'm from, if you can imagine, Latinos make up 70% of the population. So when I do book presentations in Miami, I, I did a bunch of school visits. The kids were like, oh my God, how cool the, you know, the characters like talking in Spanglish and, you know, they don't, they don't see that often. And it's incredible that, you know, here we are a whole panel of, of Latinx authors, but it's not, it's, it's still not getting to the end consumer. It's really not getting to young readers as much as we might think. So anyway, those are my, those are my geeky statistics that I'm contributing. <laughs> Go with your statistics. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, totally. I think that we're, we're getting so many more and it's kind of like what um everyone is saying is that we got to keep moving the momentum forward i think now i'm like oh gosh i'm gonna be the doom and gloom person so we are we are all familiar with the person on twitter who is like well i'm not getting an agent or i'm not getting a book deal because they only want to publish marginalized voices and then you know one of us will be like well no, uh, and then show the statistics because like we are getting um, more published, but like compared to how many of us are there in the greater population? I know, can you guys hear my baby hiccuping? I'm so sorry. <laughs> totally, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so cute. I can't get um, cute. Uh, <laughs> I'm just cracking up. Um, but uh, he's like, lighten up, mom. <laughs> Um, so I guess what I'm saying is like, yeah, we're totally doing a lot more. And that's why like whoever mentioned, we're not really seeing agents or editors saying like, oh, I, I have my Latinx book or I have my black book or I have my whatever book, you know, we're not seeing that fortunately anymore, I hope. Um, but, uh, I think that there's still, because it's so common for people to shout out agents and editors to shout out that they're looking for it. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're. I'm not talking about agents here that editors are acquiring it as much. And um, so then there's this like miss this, this wrong idea that some people have that like, oh, well, that's all that's getting published. When, if you just look at like the statistics is it's, we still need, far, we have far longer to go, much more work to be done in publishing to make this um, where it should be. And that's why what our organization is doing. And that's why, um, you know, we're doing statistic or we're doing surveys and stuff like that, like with Lee and Lowe. Um, so yeah, yes, we're doing so much better. Yes, there is a lot more and there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And, and I think that everybody here is doing that work. And then a lot of people are trying to do that work. And a lot of people are saying that they're doing that work. And it's just a matter of, you know, we got to keep putting our stories out there. Listeners, you got to keep writing your story. You got to keep, you have to be really persistent and remember your why and keep sending it out and just know that there there is going to be the person who that's right for you just have to like really stick with it because we need your stories and you know so I want so we can all smack down that person on Twitter who's complaining and acting like that's the reason why they don't have a book deal <laughs> yeah I really agree with what you're saying Nikki um and I think some of the work that needs to be done is like at the editorial editor level the the vice presidents like are there latinx editors are there latinx vice presidents of publishing like publishing as a whole does not reflect the population 
at all. You know, it's it's very, very largely monochromatic. Um, and I I actually have both a white editor and a white agent, and they're both really strong allies. Um, so I'm not saying that that they're not doing good things because they are, but um, you know, publishing as a whole needs to definitely embrace the Latinx up and coming uh, folks who can be editing and who, and it'll help if the whole chain of command has some people of color in it to, um, to see the value of these stories because sometimes it is hard to kind of translate to the industry the value of these stories. The readership really is there you know, and they, they throw up some false barriers like, oh, you know, there's just not as many people that will buy this book because the main character is brown or whatever. And it turns out that's that's not true. You have, um, you know, blockbuster books with characters of color. So um, I think we disproved that a long time ago, but publishing as a whole needs to um, be hiring Latinx folks throughout to start to see like a bigger change, I think. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And I wanted to piggyback off that red, then I'm going to be quiet because I've talked too much, but I want to piggyback off of that, what you pointed out about your agent, your editor and how they're great allies. And that just reminded me to say that like, yeah, and all of our wonderful Latinx editors, like my, my wonderful, wonderful Latinx editor for everything with an in-between, they're doing the work out there too. And so when I'm saying this, and when people are saying about this, we're not talking about we're not talking about editors. We're talking about people, way, the ones who are holding the purse, purse strings and who are saying like to them in their acquisitions board meetings or like the people maybe high up, high up in all levels, sales, publicity, you know, the vice presidents or whomever who are saying, is there space for this or not? And so again, I'm glad that you said that because I have a problem. It's like, oh, you're a writer, but meaning me and I'm not succinct with what I'm saying. I, this isn't, this, this systemic issue isn't like a problem with the, the fantastic, um, editors and in often agents and publicists and these people that we're seeing it's it's the people up higher who are making those decisions and holding the purse strings Nikki, and that's where we need to see more diversity absolutely that's how you know nikki's spot on though because her her child is like on the podcast too going yeah mom yeah i feel all of that yeah <laughs> and and i just i'm gonna quick off of what rebecca was saying is you know when we're looking at the systemic issue i mean even yesterday there was a um, a walkout of sorts, right? That we all saw on Twitter, and um, and you know about having uh, increased uh, commitment to diversity in publishing in a particular house, and to have equitable, you know, treatment, and to you know support a lot of things that people we're talking about right here, and you know, and and somebody who's listening right now says, well, I just want to be a writer. I just want to be published. I just want to. I want to write my books. I don't want to think about all that. And I'm like, praise you. I would love to be there too, and I would love to not think about those things as well. But as we talk more about how we need, you know, Latinx, you know, um, agents and editors and um, copy editors and, you know, how we need to put those people in there, we also have to understand that, that it is what Rebecca is saying. It is from the top down that we have to start creating equitable um, spaces and we have to create places where people can actually afford to be in those positions, because if you're not being paid to survive in New York City, and I'm not, I'm not saying you have to have a Porsche, but where you could survive, you know, and so there's a lot of layers to this conversation, it's probably a whole other podcast, so I won't go there, but just to say that, you know, is it, 
is it, 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 it's important that as an author, once, you, once you've written your book and, and you've put it out there, that you realize that, that there is a whole other world of publishing that is bigger than us. And, and it's important to have a knowledge of it and decide where your place is in it, and in the sense of like where you need to be in the conversation. Maria, jump in. Yeah, I, I love, I'm just learning so much from all of you. I'm just sitting here like listening. But I think it's so true, the top-down piece, it's, it can't be um, stated enough. But also, I think, too, something that Sally Ann said earlier about the kids in Miami, how 70% of them were Cuban-American, like, the more we elevate Latinx authors and get our books to librarians and to schools, then kids will see, oh, I could be a writer or, or an editor, I could be in this world of publishing because this person who looks like me and speaks like me and has similar cultural background as me did it. And so, oh, this is something that could be opened up to me. Like I grew up not ever reading a book by a Latinx author. You know, I think the first book, I mean, I read a lot of literature growing up in high school and a lot of Federico García Lorca and Borges and like, you know, there were some Sandra Cisneros, but not like kidlit, like mainstream kidlit authors of color and Latinas and Latinos, not really. And so I just think it's really inspiring to see all of you on the screen and to see what Las Musas is doing and to just know that the hope for me there is that kids, that Latinx kids are reading books by Latinx authors and we just have to keep, keep writing and keep doing it like for them because then they're gonna like be inspired to maybe become a literary agents or editors. My um, 12 year old daughter kind of loves the idea of being an editor one day because she loves to read. She devours books like a book a day, um, but she doesn't necessarily love to write. She enjoys it, but uh, she loves reading more. And she's like, maybe I'll be an editor. And I'm like, yes, you can be an editor. <laughs> so oh, that's, that's my so two cents. I do think it's it's growing and there's interest. I would like to see more Central American rep and a little bit more like Latinx fantasy writers and sci-fi. Like, I yes, feel like that's yes. a space that there's not enough of us. You know, like you go to Barnes and Noble or your local bookstore and you go to the the fantasy section and it's like they're they're very few and far between so there's space for that yeah I think that also speaks to the fact that acquiring books that cover the whole spectrum of being Latinx there's so many different identities within being Latinx and I mean I love what Sally Ann said also about the kids and I I just recently did a panel at ALA called Engaging Underrepresented Readers, and it was an amazing panel. And I was talking about my experience growing up as a Mexican-American in Minneapolis. I didn't have any Mexican-American friends. I didn't know any other Mexican-Americans other than my huge family. And um, Spanish was not allowed to be spoken outside of the home. So it was like very confusing. It was a very confusing existence because, you know, am I Mexican enough to be Mexican? Am I, where, where do I fit in? And um, so I, I included that, you know, in my book, The Turning Point, because it really was inspired by my experience growing up in that way. And when I was doing my signing afterwards, this woman was first in my line and she was totally crying. And she said, I just want to let you know that what you said about your experience of not feeling like you're Mexican enough because you weren't allowed to speak Spanish outside of the home really spoke to me. And I I feel totally seen and I had no idea that there were other people out there like me. And I just like started, of course, crying, like, how do you not? And 
it's totally why I write and it's totally why these books are important. It's, I mean, I, I just don't even know if I can add any more to, to the point other than that. I mean, there are so many people out there who need these stories and, you know, 5%, that's still pretty low. I would like to see it double at least. But look what you gave that woman in her heart. Like what, what it was, I'm sorry, it was a woman, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you gave her, you gave her a mirror. You gave her a mirror and you gave her a place where she could say, that's my experience too. And we feel less alone and we write. She gave me alone. one. Yeah. She gave me one. It was like, I was looking at myself. I was like, oh my gosh, there's another person out there just like me. <laughs> because I was a very reluctant reader as a child. I wasn't that kid that grew up in the library. I wasn't because there weren't books about being Mexican-American, but being my kind of Mexican-American. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, I love what you just said, Vanessa. And I love what Maria said, too, about, you know, books as a child. And I'd love to know what everyone else thinks, which is totally not on. I've totally hijacked the podcast. So this is terrible. But I didn't have any books either. Like I was in a book desert. But well, the books we had, they didn't reflect my experience of being Mexican-American, of being adopted, of being, you know, hiding my queerness or, or, you know, growing up with racist white people as my family. Like there was nothing for me. I, I went when Maria's like, oh, and, you know, I read Cisneros. I'm like, what high school did you go to? This is amazing. I want to go there. I want to be at that school. I mean, we had it's just like I look back and I think literally there was it was just nothing in that there was such a loneliness and when I think about Vanessa's story it's like you, it's you feel so, it, 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 sometimes it can be someone who Vanessa could write a book that's for a, you know someone who's 17 but someone who's 40 can read that and that kind of like heals that part of them that they carry with themselves and I just like that's beautiful that's just magical yeah it was I, it completely, was. I completely agree with that and I love these stories of of us essentially as young children figuring out how we became authors and I think it's so powerful um I definitely related to that too and it's so interesting to me to hear about reluctant readers I was just in an interview and they're like yeah what were some of your favorite kids books and honestly I really I mean I did like being read too I loved our class time read alouds and everything but I was in another world like I just did not relate to so many of these books and honestly, it was a big reason why I went into education and later studied illustration and design because I just really didn't feel seen. And I think the first book that even remotely connected with me, and I would definitely say remotely because it's not like I had a whole family like this, but Isabel Allende's House of the Spirits was one of the first books that I was like, wow, there's, there's someone kind of like me in this book and kind of like my family. And, um, it was kind of the first time I even started to even reflect on that side of myself because I also grew up in a school that really didn't have a lot of Latinx students and especially not like, like me exactly because the ones who did come were recent immigrants and we were separated into those who knew Spanish and those you know who were speaking English. And so in my, my particular classes, um, I really didn't know anyone. <laughs> um, so um I definitely related to that and just as a little glimpse going back um I have to say that I started teaching in 2006 and at that time as a dual language teacher my Spanish section literally included all like like Spanish translations of English books and I remember being so excited just to find like Arthur Dorro's book, Abuela, like it was like one, I was like, oh my God, thank goodness. And I can read this with my students who, as I mentioned, um, they were, I stayed in Upper Manhattan throughout teaching and, you know, they were from 
they had families from the Dominican Republic and Mexico and Puerto Rico, and you know they were reading Dr. Seuss in Spanish, and it was just it didn't. There were so many beautiful books that could that could you know reach them, and um, and I just remember finding you know. Monica Brown, she started with her books and now that they have so they have so many more books to choose from and it's definitely definitely not enough but it is inspiring to to listen to all of you and your own experiences and I love the idea of little kids just like seeing that it's even possible and that their stories will be next and that they'll be on those shelves and they have a place there so I love your answers to this question and um so moving back, unless, of course, you said you wanted to say some more about this topic, EE. So if you'd like to, you're, you're welcome. Um, but there was one last question from our listeners, um, which is moving back more to the craft side. And it's was far away from, from this, which is so fascinating to me. And I love all of your points, um, especially about you know, changing the top structure, which think has a lot to do with, with those walkouts we were talking about earlier. Um, so yeah, so getting back to the to the process, um, what are some of your tips for our listeners about outlining plot? And any <laughs> um, of you are welcome to jump in or we can go back to our order. Uh, well, I've, I'll jump in. I really love um, the, uh, let's see, the Save, Save the Cat Writes a Novel by Jessica Brody, I want to say. Um, and it's become almost trite because everyone says that, but it's so helpful. It's truly helpful. And there are a number of others. You know, there's so many um, plot structures out there. The seven point, the nine point, uh, the hero's journey, of course, the virgin's promise, which is more like a heroine's journey. But the the important thing to know is that these are frameworks that don't, they don't boss you around. They help make sure your story is hitting those universal um, kind of emotional moments. And it can help your big picture a whole lot. It won't help you like, what should I put in this scene? Or what should they say to each other? Or should I describe the couch or not? You know, the, you're going to have to work all that out. But but the plot structure is really, it's it's really helpful for the big picture. Yeah, all of these resources. Yeah, and Salian, what about you? What, what helps you with that state of flow to get everything in its right place? You know, I'm like the worst person to ask. I think, Vanessa, you once called me on a podcast, the yoga, the yogi master of writing, because I did. I really <laughs> I really kind of go with the flow. I'm, I'm the word, I'm a total pantser. So I do create an outline, but I do it after the fact once I'm really kind of entrenched with the story. And I guess I got this magical gift that the characters really kind of take a life of their own and start talking to me and they really drive the story. And I feel like I'm just the conduit writing the story for them. So that is probably why I'm a pantser. So I really don't have much to contribute to outlining. I do it again, but I do it after the fact. <laughs> um, and let's see, Maria Jose. Sure. Um, so I'm also sort of a converted pantser into a planter and now more of a plotter. So I've written three books and each one has been plotted and mapped out differently. Like the first one was like bullet point outline and then save the cat and story story genius, story engineering. But I guess um, 
just for me, like if I have a very intentional, like goal, internal goal conflict for my main character and an external goal or conflict, I feel like that that conflict will drive the story forward. Like if it's very clear to me what it is that my main character has to achieve or learn or accomplish by the end of the novel, then I can kind of plan out my scenes accordingly. So really doing that character background for me helps me plot. Because if I can figure out who they are and what they want and what they need, then I can kind of come up with scenes that will get me there. And you have to be careful because sometimes like it seems like forced, like you made a scene just so that she would learn this thing and move the story along. So, you know, that's where revision comes along. Um, but yeah, I mean, save the cat, story engineering, story genius, those are all really helpful as well. I have a hard time sticking to them, but at least I try to have like a, a clear opening scene, a clear midpoint and a clear ending. And then, you know, and then you just kind of play around. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I agree. I'm like a, I'm like a total, whatever, fly by the seat of my pants writer as well. And I like it that way because it's like a big surprise around every corner. Like, I don't even know what's going to happen. And it's, it's like, I'm reading the book. And then when I had to actually plot something for my book too, because it was required by my contract, then I was in a total panic mode and I went out and got like writing the breakout novel by Donald Mass, you know, and all that stuff like, oh, what do I do? And um, I still just wrote this giant outline. I think I've mentioned this before on one of these podcasts. My first outline was 84 pages long, single spaced, <laughs> single spaced. And my, my, I know people, if you could see everyone's faces right now, everyone. So my agent was like, you cannot send that to your editor. And so I, I cut it in half. I cut it in half. And then I sent it to her and she's like, well, I feel like I've already read the book. And it's like, yeah, she pretty much had, but um, I do pretty serious character bios ahead of time too. Just like Maria does. It's very important to me because then that just sort of drives the story because I am a pantser. But if I have like a specific timeline that I have to keep to, I will actually get a, an old school calendar out and write things on the calendar so that I know, you know, exactly what's happening when, and then you all can't see because this is a podcast, but behind me, I have my storyboard that I do for revisions with post-it notes with colors and each character has a different color and each chap, they go on, you know, wherever the chapter where they appear in each chapter, I put their post-it note and I write their individual conflict on each of those post-it notes so that I have their complete arcs. And that really helps me in the revision process because I'm a visual person when it comes to revisions. So, yeah. Is anyone just kind of like going, how is Vanessa so superhuman? And in EMT <laughs> times, like, I'm like 84, 84 pages. 84, that's, I'm going to write that number down for the rest of my life. I just 84 put it in pages. 84 pages. And that's the outline, right? That's yeah, oh my God, that's, that's so beyond me. All I'm going to say is I'm not Vanessa. Um, and, and no, no one is Vanessa's Vanessa, but I, what I do is, is I, I don't outline traditionally unless it's something like I'm co-writing a, a book right now that requires outlining because it's a story within a story that kind of keeps turning and turning and unfolding. And so I have to have some sense of where we're going or, you know, I can't be all of a sudden like, Oh, I'm so surprised in this particular case. But traditionally speaking, no, it's, I, I, I hear a line of dialogue. I, I see, uh, I hear music or something. 
And I start writing from what I call the dramatic center. It's like a filmmaking term or whatever, playwriting. And I just write from that point. And then I kind of, once I have it centered, that's going to give me some sense of the character. Then I'm kind of, you know, start looking at, okay, where do they live? Who are they? You start, it's like an actor, right? You start looking at the character development. And then, and then I think to myself, well, what's the trailer of this book? If it were a film, what's the trailer? Because, you know, trailers tell us the whole story, right? So what are the key moments, right? If I know the beginning, middle, and end, then I just got to fill in some of that stuff in between, right? And so it makes it sound really, you know, reductive. It is not that simple, but like it's so I can psych myself out and not get super overwhelmed. But because in the first draft is just the first draft. And then revision for me is where the book is made. And so in revision is where you're really going to have to buckle down. And that with your storyboard, that is the one thing we share is I do that too, except yours is more orderly. I, I you know, mine <laughs> is definitely the representation of an ADHD brain, but that is, it's totally that. And, and so I think that, you know, everything everyone has said is so important. Like, you know, if you're just coming in, save the cat, all these, all these different texts, find something that works for you. It's all, it, it really is about what's going to fit your journey as a writer is what I think. And I have one that's free that you can get on the internet. I really like um, Susan Dennard's outlining instructions that you can get online with Publishing Crawl. So just Google Susan Dennard outline publishing crawl and you can use that if, if anyone wants to give it a shot. I have not always used that. I um, like for my first published book, The Quiet You Carry, I think I knew where I was going to start, knew where I was going to end, knew like a couple things that happened in between and was just like, see what happens and and then but I think for and then quiet no more was a sequel and I did I'm pretty sure I did the Susan Denner thing everything within and in between the third book was my most which was not at all related that was the one that was about um being mixed and, and Latinx and um the identity stuff that I talked about that was the most organized I'd ever been I don't know that I will say to the level of some of us in this group <laughs> but I I did do like I had like Scribner and I had like I so I did the Susan Dennard outline but then I like took Scribner and the note cards where I put like scene by scene plans and then I had like character bios and character like pictures from the internet that I thought they would look like from actors and uh you know what makes them tick and that kind of stuff and so I I guess the point that I'm saying rather than just like oh I like to outline and I use Susan Dennard's way from publishing crawl is that it can vary from book to book and that's okay. And you could see what, like, maybe this works for this story. Maybe it, maybe you want to be more of a, uh, like pantser in the beginning, like I was, and then you're like, Oh gosh, I might, I got a deadline. I got to do this more quickly and then try something else. But, uh, I might try Scribner again with my next book. So I guess my, what I'm saying is try different things. And, uh, all those books are really great. You can also look for free resources online and it's all good. Yeah, well, this this is so much great advice. And like all of you, I've looked at a lot of these resources. One that really helped me a lot was also Story Genius. Um, but what has helped me, I think, especially as I'm writing my first picture book, is just looking at the picture books that I loved myself and basically going backwards from their, from, you know, their finished product to going backwards and thinking about their structure and how they organized it. And just taking notes on that. Um, also with post-its, not again as organized as some of your beautiful displays that I'm seeing. Um, but yeah, I think that that was really, really helpful. Um, and thank you all so much for all of your wonderful advice and thoughts about so many different things and sharing your experiences and stories. And is there anything else any of you would like to add before I wrap up? 
I want to say to everybody to keep writing your stories, because regardless of if we say we have 5% today, we have a lot more tomorrow or less or whatever, that there is room and the need for, for your stories, for our stories. And, uh, we all have like unique lenses through which we view the world, you know, in addition to our life experiences and our culture, it, it just all of it. And so regardless of whether, whether whatever's happening in publishing is positive or what might sound negative, like this is the best time. The best time to start is now it's, it's, it's better now than it was before. Yes. You agree with me little baby. And it's going to be better tomorrow than it is now because of the work that our group is doing because of the work that you're doing. So we just got to keep pushing forward. And, and that's, that's what we're all here for. What a perfect way and note to end on. Thank you so much, Nikki. So if you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also sign up for the Las Musas newsletter to have podcast updates, as well as other Musa news, such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening.